Hey, welcome to the So To Speak podcast. I'm your host, John Beadle. Let's get started. I'm going to talk to you today. Uh, part, this is part two of my book review of Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, which came out last year and um, has been doing super well, selling number one on all kinds of book lists all over the world. Uh, and some odd reason, the New York Times has refused to to label it a New York Times bestseller, even though it has de- definitely passed all the cate- categorical loopholes it needs to actually be considered such. But um, even Borders the other day, I went not Borders, sorry, <laughs> Borders is out of is no longer a thing. I went to Barnes and Noble, and they had a whole display titled um, "Get the Book That Everyone's Talking About," and so I was very pleased to see that, and I'm. Very pleased to get a chance to really talk about this with you today. It is going to be a very incomplete review. I'm just going to read some pat some some of my favorite passages from the book, as I promised the last um, episode. This is part two of our very first book review for Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Let's go. Now, let's talk about the book. Uh, A big theme in the book, 12 Rules for Life, is Jordan Peterson's um, approach to the human experience or um, existence itself, right? It's not your typical self-help book. It's not your typical, um, this is 12 things you can do that can make your life better or 12 things that will reveal a positive outlook that will give you what you want in life. But instead, he he assumes that life is what it is and you are what you are, right? That life has its own set of expectations that are ingrained in the DNA of nature and that you as an individual have to learn how to settle yourself like dust on the, on the desk of existence, right? You have to learn how to place yourself um, in the story, in the narrative that is unfolding. So for him, values are not discovered. I mean, sorry, values are not created, they're discovered. And, um, and the way he, he does this is he sort of like talks about ideology and he talks about the things which, um, which are being, um, that are trying to replace what he calls being, being, B-E-I-N-G with a capital B. And, and probably one of the best footnotes of the entire book right there in, the, in the, uh, the, what he calls the overture, the introduction, he defines being with a capital B this way. He says, I use the term being with a capital B in part because of my exposure to the ideas of the 20th century German philosopher Martin Heidegger. Heidegger tried to distinguish between reality as conceived objectively and the totality of human experience, which is his being. Being with a capital B is what each of us experiences subjectively, personally, individually, as well as what we experience jointly with others. As such, it includes emotions, drives, dreams, visions, and revelations, as well as our private thoughts and perceptions. Being is also finally something that is brought into existence by action, so its nature is to an indeterminate degree a consequence of our decisions and choices, something shaped by our hypothetically free will. Construed in this manner, being is one, not something easily and directly reducible to the material and objective, and two, something that most definitely requires its own term, as Heidegger labored for decades to indicate. Now, let's stop there for a second. Wow, what a footnote. (laughs) What a footnote, right? He's trying to show people the way out of nihilism, okay? Now, nihilism being that, like, you know, existence is meaningless, 
uh, this is a very broad caricature of nihilism, but it's it's basically true, right? That in the end, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as like inherent meaning. There is only the meaning that you create yourself, or the meaning created by power. And so this is why nihilism was sort of the bad guy, the boogeyman of a lot of Russian novels. The the, the bad guy always was a nihilist, and that's because at the time, nihilism was emerging out of a liberalism that was untethered by its original traditions and religious moorings in society. And so, uh, so, so Peterson is saying, yeah, you know what? There is a, um, there's a hopelessness and a despair that is a logical um, outworking of your, our view of the world. If we really look at, at, at the, uh, the surroundings if we really look at it, like like despair and hopelessness can actually come out of that, it, and it actually logically makes sense. Um, you know, if you're, for instance, if you're a Christian, Christians and nihilists have always shared, um, in a lot of ways, a very a very similar view uh, ground for what what the world actually is. Life is really suffering, but we we you know Christians aren't nihilists, and Peterson's not a nihilist, and the way he's saying this is he's saying, look, you have to rediscover culture, and um, T. S. Eliot once said that. Culture is the, the whole harvest of thinking and feeling, right? So being is basically the starting point uh, for culture. And the starting point, of course, is the individual, which he, which he makes sacrosanct. And he goes on to elucidate these rules in his book. And I literally have the book right in front of me. And um, my, my favorite rules um, I'm going to share in the next section. All right, here are my favorite rules out of the 12. The first one's my favorite is number one, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Um, in this chapter, um, Peterson talks about the the lobster, right? And he uses the lobster to sort of catapult um, the discussion into this sort of stratosphere of meaning and purpose, right? But he wants to start with nature. And this is this is really just central to what Peterson loves to do. He loves to just kind of start in the realm of naturalism the realm of like what is nature um, inherently trying to teach us about ourselves or by themselves like what are they saying about their own experience and then how does that translate into our experience this is where the the most famous I mean idiotic question that came out of Kathy Newman's mouth from the the, uh, the, uh, Channel 4 News interview that she did this is like a month back, but a very famous now interview, and she, where she asked Peterson, should we then, are you saying model society off of how lobsters act? And, and Peterson's like, no, I'm not saying that at all, but, but this is sort of like to miss, miss the point, right? That, that we're, uh, Peterson's trying to say something actually more profound, but he's going, he's starting very basic. He's saying, look, human beings are animals. They have a species like they have, there are certain patterns to our behavior that are, that are a necessary part of our own, um, our own DNA that are part of our biological makeup, right? And um, and they actually have a lot of things in common with other species. And the lobster is is one of those things that we have in common. So here's what he says you know, on page six of his book about the lobster in the battle about with other lobsters. It says in the aftermath of a losing battle, regardless of how aggressively a lobster has behaved. It becomes unwilling to fight further, even against another previously defeated opponent. 
A vanquished competitor loses confidence, sometimes for days. Sometimes the defeat can have even more severe consequences. But if a dominant lobster is badly defeated, its brain basically dissolves. Then it grows a new, subordinate's brain, one more appropriate to its new, lowly position. Its original brain just isn't sophisticated to, to manage the transformation from king to bottom dog without virtually complete disillusion and regrowth. Anyone who has experienced a painful transformation after a serious defeat in romance or career may feel some sense of kinship with the once successful crustacean. And then I have my own little annotation here. I say, if gone unchecked, we become something weak and horrific, right? So our lives are full. What he's saying is our lives are full of these experiences of, of wins and losses, and you're going to lose. Like, you're not just going to be like the lobster who's at the top who just only wins, and that's why he's there. But if you don't ha- learn how to, uh, y- you know, take your suffering, take your losses in stride, then it actually does affect the way that you think. And, um, and there's some similarity between the lost lobster brain and the human brain, right? Anti- like, for instance, one of the things he mentions is that antidepressants actually work on a lobster, uh, that, that they actually do, that their serotonin levels, you can tell, actually increase, and that they are different, that the winning lobster is, um, has a different brain chemistry than the one who has suffered a tremendous loss, and so, and so that's really an amazing kind of point to say, just if, if anything to say that, you know, how you, tr- how we translate our experiences does affect our brains, there have been much, um, much on, much to say on this subject of neural pathways and the way the brain reacts to negative information versus positive information. You know, I remember uh, back in the day there was a group of guys, a group of us guys who got together because, you know, there was um, a desire for us to kick um, a certain habit, right, of uh, internet pornography, and, and there were so many of us who were so addicted to this thing, and we were just sick of it. And one of the things we learned how to do was not to talk about uh, pornography in a negative, uh, you know, the struggle in a negative sense. Because what we often did was we would say, I hate this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to look at that stuff online anymore, blah, 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 blah. And we realized that the negative statements didn't work, that the brain uh, recognized these, like, positive statements as more powerful than negative statements. And so we started saying things like, I will be pure in heart and mind. I will... um, I will be able to to live in such a way that I don't, you know. So we started saying these these. Now it's not the power of positive thinking. It's it's a bold recognition that the brain is actually impacted by the way that we think, and that the the thoughts that we have do eventually play out in the actions that we take. And um, and so yeah, it's just sort of a, this really fascinating kind of way of looking at it. That the lobster is how Peterson begins his big talk on what it really means to be human. So, you want to be the top lobster or don't you? Alright, one of my other favorite rules from the book is to tell the truth. He says to tell the truth, tell the truth or at least don't lie. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. We've sort of lost the art of being silent, right? Sometimes you don't, it, there's not a moment where 
there, there are moments in life where you really should not speak at all. You know, just let the thing hang there in the air and leave it alone. Um, we don't have to speak into everything. But one of the things that, he, that Peterson claims is a real deterrent to telling the truth is what he calls the problem of cynicism. He says on pages 212 to 213, he says, Only the most cynical, hopeless philosophy insists that reality could be improved through falsification. Such a philosophy judges being and becoming alike and deems them flawed. It denounces truth as insufficient and the honest man as deluded. It is a philosophy that both brings about and then justifies the endemic corruption of the world. It is not vision as such, and not a plan devised to achieve a vision that is at fault under such circumstances. A vision of the future, the desirable future, is necessary. Such a vision links action taken now with important long-term foundational values. It lends actions in the present significance and importance. It provides a frame limiting uncertainty and anxiety. And this is, this is really where it gets good. It's not vision. It is instead willful blindness. It's the worst sort of lie. It's subtle. It avails itself of easy rationalizations. Willful blindness is the refusal to know something that could be known, right? So it's this idea that we have hard, a hard time telling the truth because we think we know better. We think we know what is best for ourselves and what is best for other people. And most of the time, it's like, I don't know what's best for myself at all. This is why I need other people in my life, which leads me to the topic of deception, right? The thing about being deceived, if there is such a thing, which I think there is, is that you don't know when you're deceived. That's, that's what it means. And so being in community is super important to have people in your life who will say, hey, dude, you're being an idiot right now. <laughs> what are you doing? You're deceived. To tell me the truth, not lie to me and say, and say something for the weak-minded, something like stupid like, well, it's just as long as you're happy. Just as long as I'm happy. What does happiness have anything to do with it? And what good is happiness when it's so fleeting, when it's so thin, when it's so easily come and go? Uh, what good is it, right? Why, why value that as the criterion for whether or not we encounter the truth? Something to think about. He says uh, later on in this, in this chapter, he says, To accept the truth means to sacrifice, and if you have rejected the truth for a long time, then you've run up a dangerously large sacrificial debt. <laughs> I love that because if, if you avoid the truth, right, and you accept the lie in your life, then um, eventually you run up a debt, right, with truth. In other words, you, you pattern your life so much off of, off of lies for so long that you eventually um, find yourself caught, caught in the, de the deluge of, of truth, that when it comes, it'll really rain down on you, and it, it'll, be, it'll lead to, to even greater unnecessary suffering, you know? If you cause yourself the momentary displeasure of hearing the truth, <laughs> um, then you'll, you'll save yourself from the, the long-term um, pain that cynicism blinds you from if you're not careful. All right, let's move on to the next rule. This is rule number nine, which is assume that the person you're listening, uh, you're listening to might know something that you don't. Now, I'm going to kind of – this is going to be the last rule that I'm going to elucidate, but I, I really like this one because there's a paragraph in particular about listening 
that um, that Peterson um, that Peterson like explains that I just think is brilliant. I think it's a, br- a brilliant piece of writing, and um, and and of course, in typical Peterson fashion, he does not shield you from the terror of encountering the truth in this in, when it comes to listening. Uh, but basically, he he's talking about listening as the other side of the coin of talking, right? And listening as a judge, right? Your ear is a judge to help someone else uh, bounce their idea off of you, whether and to see if it really is something that is closer or further away from reality. And here's what he says on page 242. He says, a listening person tests your talking and your thinking without having to say anything. A listening person is a representative of common humanity. He stands for the crowd. Now, the crowd is by no means always right, but it's commonly right. It's typically right. If you say something that takes everyone aback, therefore, you should reconsider what you said. I say that knowing full well that controversial opinions are sometimes correct, sometimes so much so that the crowd will perish if it refuses to listen. It is for this reason, among others, that the individual is morally obliged to stand up and tell the truth of his or her own experience. But something new and radical is still almost always wrong. You need good, even great, reasons to ignore or defy general public opinion. That's your culture. It's a mighty oak. You perch on one of its branches. If the branch breaks, it's a long way down, farther, perhaps, than you think. Now, first of all, what I love about this, what he's saying, is that listening is providing a home for thinking, right? Listening opens the door um, to a person, who, a stranger, to walk in and come and make themselves um, available um, to you. The listener, and allows them to say something without fear, um, in order to get something wrong. And it's okay to be wrong. Another thing I like about it is that the individual is seen as a microcosm of the group, right? So the individual is important, just like the group's important. Um, the individual, of course, according to Peterson, is sacrosanct. Um, but nevertheless, um, it is important that people are not destroyed in their group membership. That they don't just that we don't forget that people are first individuals before they're members of groups, right? That they are individual cultures before they're members of culture. So something to consider. Okay. And then there's the really the need for a renewed sense of political discussion. And by political, Peterson does not necessarily just mean the kind that involves electoral politics, but the kind that is public. A public discussion is necessarily a political one because anytime we have a public discussion, we're making at least by the the form of the discussion an, an argument, um, a, a, a moment of uh, attempt at persuasion, being persuasive, right? And this is what Peterson says about that. There's the conversation where one participant is trying to attain victory for his point of view. This is yet another variant of the dominance hierarchy conversation. During such a conversation, which often tends towards the ideological, the speaker endeavors to, one, denigrate or ridicule the viewpoint of anyone holding a contrary um, position. Two, use selective evidence while doing so. And finally, three, impress the listeners, many of whom are already occupying the same ideological space, with the validity of his assertions. The goal is to gain support for a comprehensive, unitary, oversimplified worldview. Thus, the purpose of the conversation is to make the case that not thinking is the correct tack. 
The person who is speaking in this manner believes that winning the argument makes him right and that doing so necessarily validates the assumption structure of the dominance hierarchy he most identifies with. This is often and unsurprisingly the hierarchy within which he has achieved the most success or the one with which he is most temperamentally aligned. Almost all discussions involving politics or economics unfold in this manner, with each participant attempting to justify fixed I priori positions instead of trying to learn something or to adopt a different frame, even for the novelty. It is for this reason that conservatives and liberals alike believe their positions to be self-evident, particularly as they become more extreme. Now, it's very fascinating because here Peterson is not... Um, let's take a break for a second. Here Peterson is not acknowledge that he doesn't say that a dominance hierarchy is always the best method for how we organize our common life together, right? Um, He's not saying that at all. In fact, I would argue that Peterson is saying that he thinks we should govern ourselves by the higher law, the logos, right? More on that later, but, but, um, what I really, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to come across as saying is like, it's so easy to be blinded by ideology in our own clubs. And the more effort that we make to attain a sort of unity in our difference, um, a sort of unity in our, in our discussion and our thought life, the more we'll actually be celebrating diversity and multiculturalism in, in, a, in a pure strain. But as long as diversity simply means, you know, not right wing, and as long as multiculturalism means anti-white or anti-Western, then we're not having real discussions. It's just jargon. It's just ideology. I think to finally wrap up this podcast, there are three primary things that Jordan Peterson is trying to say in this book. And then once I go over them, I'm going to tell you what I really personally feel and with my experience with reading the book. Uh, three themes. One, stand up straight. Two, get your house in order. And three, be the hero of the story. Um, one, stand up straight. Be like the top lobster, you know, be confident. Even in failure, learn from your mistakes, reflect. Then move on, move forward. Don't complain about any kind of victim status because we're all, as he says, part victims and part victors, part privileged and part not privileged, right? So just learn to be grateful for the past, be be present in the moment, and idealistic for the future, no matter how grim the situation. Second point, get your house in order. Don't seek to change the world on the outside before you change the world on the inside. If you can't make your bed... Don't claim you know how to how to make the laws concerning guns or the laws concerning health care or the laws concerning the other inequities and the other inequities in our life together. Don't claim to you think like you really know. Because at the heart of your of our of our, not just yours, mine, of our effort will will always lie a hypocrisy. There will be a lie at the center of that action, that effort. And effort and action always has has a way of changing the world, the circumstances in which we conduct our common life together. And if they're conducted around a lie, we have to be careful. So he says, like he says, make up your bed before you choose to make up the world, which I think is a good strategy, right? And finally, be the hero of the story. In this sense, he's channeling Joseph Campbell, um, who was just like Yoon before him, right? Um, and Peterson loves to live in Jungian archetypes. He loves it. And he talks about being the hero a lot. Be the man who has to leave the Shire like, like, like Frodo, you know, who has to go into the unknown, seeking adventure and, seeking, and actually seeking out hard things, to do hard things, to make 
things happen and to and to try to um, to really make a difference in that way. Be the hero. This is a reason why this appeals mostly to young men uh, and why young, young men are primarily being attracted to Jordan Peterson, even though there are plenty of female fans. I think men in our country in particular lately have been really taking a beating in our public conversation. Um, there's a reason why that's the case, but I don't really want to get into it here. What I do want to say is that there is a need for young men, I think, in our culture to really take a stand again. And not in a way that's like, you know, beating the chest, you know, and screaming, I'm a man, look at me, you know, um, but in a way that really is meaningful and powerful and um, that asserts what it means to be a human being again and uh, to stop letting um, the antics of, of a few really bad apples define what it means to be a man in this culture. So overall, my uh, my reading of, of Peterson for this book is really good. I, I gave it a four out of five stars. I thought it was an excellent read, um, well-written, well-orchestrated. Um, something uh, The outline was excellent, and I thought Peterson um, a great man for attempting to actually help people. He could have written a manifesto. He could have written a book that told people what we were going to do now that we were shaking off the bounds of ideology and pressing forward into the future. But instead, what Peterson chose to do was write a book for people who, who wanted to figure out some ways to actually clean up their life and be, um, be a good citizen, be a, somebody who can actually contribute order amidst the chaos. I think that's honorable. And uh, I look forward to what he has to write in the future. So don't forget that um, we're going to be reading more books together and um, in the future. And so be on the lookout for those. If you like what you've heard today, go ahead and subscribe and share. Uh, I'd be really interested in hearing what you have to say. And um, if you like what you hear here, here, please uh, don't hesitate to contact me. Find us on Facebook. Just search So To Speak. And we're also on Twitter at uh, speak underscore public. And uh, thank you for listening. Have a great day.